0: Mind Body Connection Podcast The Body and Mind. Mind with your host Dr. Phil Parker. Hi and a very warm welcome to this episode of the Mind Body Connection. Today I'm talking to Dr. Sarah Lidston who is both a neuroscientist with a PhD in neuroscience, but also a neurologist, so she's a medical doctor. Uh, she's been training for a long time, which I'll tell you about, and she has a fascinating take on how what she's learned from her research and what she's learned from her clinical practice will help people to make changes and change the medical system in the long run. It's a fascinating talk. I hope you enjoy her insights into how it all works, how it fits together and her fascinating early research. So here's Dr. Sarah Lidston. Welcome. It's great to have you here. Um, Today we're going to be talking about the mind-body connection and in the introduction I've introduced you as this incredible force of nature (laughs) in healthcare. Um, And I know a bit about you that you started off doing a PhD that's where you that's where you began wasn't it with your research and then you ended up doing uh, medical training afterwards which is uh, a huge huge amount of training um, so how long did that take you first of all from a PhD to becoming a doctor?
1: I tell others, so I've, I've done 18 years of, of post-secondary education, which is more than anyone should ever have to do in their <laughs> life, in multiple lifetimes, um, but the, yeah, I started with a PhD that was a, a five-year PhD, and then I completed medical school after that, which was four years, and then a residency in neurology, which was five years, and then a fellowship in movement disorders neurology,
0: which was two years. Wow, that is a, that is a chunk of... Chunk of your life, so well done. Well done on doing that. My PhD took seven horrific years of my life, so I don't know how long really? academia can take. Um, yeah. And your PhD was in neuroscience, wasn't it? And now you're a neurologist, yeah, yeah, wow. Correct. really Correct. interesting. So, hmm. we're going to start because we're talking about the mind body connection. The question I'm asking everybody at the beginning is so the mind body connection. Um, how would you define it? What, what is it for you? What, what, how do you describe it? Do you use those terms?
1: So, I think um, it, it's a very loaded term. And, and this is a term and an understanding that has been, I, I think, part of social medicine or, or even society for thousands of years if you look at any of Anne Harrington's writings from Harvard, she's a medical historian. She'll write about this kind of history of the mind body connection and our understanding of what this means has evolved and changed and in parallel with many, many, many other movements in, 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 in society basically um, over time. And so our collective, Perspective on mind body connection, mind body, or as it applies to medicine, is highly influenced by the cultural milieu in in which we find ourselves at this time of, of, of society and, and history. So that's, you know, I'm, I'm kind of dodging the question a little bit, but it's just to kind of reinforce that we are not, this is not new, this is not something that has arisen out of the blue in the last 50 years with the use of placebo. This is something that has existed for many, many, many centuries before. Um, as a neurologist, who my practice is the area of functional disorders and Parkinson's disease, other things in neurology, um, I cannot separate mind from brain. And it depends on whether or not you see brain as part of the body or brain as separate from the body. And so I would actually expand that to say kind of mind, brain, mind, brain, body connection. Uh, Because my feeling is that mind and brain are this are together and the same, but, and then by extension, the body has to be part of that too. So I actually don't actually don't separate those things.
0: Hmm. So this is a conversation I've had with some other people who, other interviewees who, who had gone for the mind brain body uh definition rather than mind body connection and i was saying that i used to i used to use the phrase mind brain body and then people will go of course the brain is connected to the body everyone knows that anatomically what's your point so i've kind of gone back to using the mind body the, the mind body connection as a kind of statement um but it, it, just to touch on one thing you talked about functional neurological disorders which people listening may not quite understand what they are do you want to just describe functional mm-hmm.
1: So these are the second most common reason to see a neurologist. So they're extremely common. Only second to to migraine, to headache, are they the most common reason to be referred to a neurologist. These are um, formerly known as psychogenic disorders or hysteria. Uh, Many, many centuries ago, it's still being used now in some places in the world. Functional disorders is the preferred term by patients and by practitioners for now. These are a collection of disorders or symptoms that arise in the body without a definable structural lesion associated with them They exist in every area of medicine um, especially in neurology because the nervous system innervates our entire body and So it basically describes a symptom that can be experienced by the patient. It's a real symptom They feel the numbness. They feel the weakness. They have tingling. They have seizures. They have a gait disorder that is real that is not volitionally produced, but that is arising out of a interrupted communication within the nervous system. But this lack of a definable structural lesion is problematic in the way that we define disease now.
0: Excellent definition there. So, uh, and some interesting words banded around there. People who listen to the interview know I'm fascinated by the etymology of words. Hysteria, as you know, refers to, you know, women's, parts that they used to think that was something to do with women, You're hysterectomies, <laughs> all that stuff. So no. really, yeah, interesting things. And this whole, this, it really gets us to question what we mean by illness, you know, like mm. just because we haven't got the facility to find currently where the lesion is, you know, in the very basic, uh, find the break in the in the wire and we can't find that, it doesn't mean to say that people aren't ill because as you say, they have all the symptomatology of somebody with a lesion, we just haven't been able to identify it, see it, observe it. Whatever. Uh, it's like a, there's a great thing on Star Trek. I always remember in the early series of Star Trek, where Doctor yeah. McCoy comes along and they go back to the planet Earth <laughs> in the 1960s, and he sees someone's doing an operation. He's like. Get out of here, you barbarians! He tries to push them away because he can't (laughs) believe they're cutting people. It's like, have you not got a whatever his little machine was that he had? um (laughs) That we yeah we may we may later on look back and go oh no there was stuff to see we just didn't have the technology to observe it at that point in time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so functional disorder is very interesting. Us, I've seen a lot of clients with functional epilepsy. You know, so seizures, but no nothing recording when they're having a seizure. Uh, people with uh, paralysis. I've even seen a case of blindness, functional blindness, mm-hmm. w- which recovered. Um, so very interesting stuff. Uh, and the other thing we've talked about a lot with other people is about this whole language around mind, body, brain—however many of those bits we want—and whether the word "connection" is right. You know, whether because as you, if you use the word "connection," it means they must be separate at some level, as, as separate entities, or is it more as one of my Interview is who's a yoga expert uh, in the philosophy and anatomy of the yoga was talking about it's a unison, everything is seen as non separate. Uh, and this all, of course, comes back to partly as you pointed to earlier about Rene Descartes and the, the mind body you know, what we can perceive and what we can't perceive. So, yeah, for you, it sounds like it's more of a, a complete system, an interactive system. Um, mm-hmm. so. Some of your, uh, I know you kind of moved on from doing research, um, mm-hmm. but you did some really, really important papers in Parkinson's in the mid-2000s. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so do you want to talk about, I know it's kind of probably old stuff for you now, but I think it's still really important stuff. Do you want to talk about those papers?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's still, I, I still do research now in this area. Um, it's just shifted more to the actual cl- clinical application and structuring of clinical, models of clinical care that can, Maximized doctor patient relationship, which is a separate topic we can talk about after, if you want. Yeah, but I think
0: we will definitely come to that because that very much is part of what we're talking about as well. Instead of moving from, you know, the neurons that are broken to the, the human and the human interactions, but we come back to this, you know, very important stuff you did on Parkinson's and placebo response. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so this was work I did during my PhD, and I was very interested in finding a way to measure or quantify the doctor-patient relationship, or as a corollary of that um, do what we say, specifically in terms around expectation of, of people getting better, does the language that we say and, and do what we um, tell patients, can that actually directly influence the neurochemistry in the brain? Because we do know that there is this side of medicine that is hugely important, uh, and if there's a way to demonstrate you know, a biological marker of this, this all of a sudden makes it more real and more (laughs) legitimate. and so in parkinson's before i arrived to uh vancouver where i did the phd there was just a uh, in a science paper they had just discovered that this expectation of improvement was associated with dopamine release in in the brains of patients with parkinson's and this was a seminal finding because it was first of all it was occurring in a context of already having demonstrated in the 70s that the placebo effect in pain was related to the um, release of endogenous opioids. So our body's own natural opioid system was activated by placebos in patients who had pain when they were experiencing a placebo effect in pain. And yet it wasn't actually well known in Parkinson's what this mechanism might be, and in Parkinson's, the fundamental problem is that the brain is losing dopamine. It is the, the, There's a very small population of cells in the brainstem that make all the dopamine for the entire brain and body. And it's a very small area, and this is specifically targeted and starts to die slowly in Parkinson's. And what we were able to demonstrate was that, in fact, when patients are expecting to get better because they received medication, which we gave them, which was a placebo, that they released their brains were capable of producing still vast quantities of, of dopamine. And what was very interesting was the amount of dopamine that was released was directly related to how strong their belief was of improvement. And so I actually told people, okay, you have a one in four chance this is your medication, or a one in a three in four chance or so forth, or a hundred percent chance. And so there if you can imagine a scenario where you're able to somehow you know, kind of modulate someone's strength of, of benefit that they expect. This is somehow um, altering how much dopamine the brain is able to produce.
0: Yeah, I think it's the two really interesting things about that study. The first is, and, and this is the same when I was talking to Luana about her work that precedes it, I think, that we're seeing actual physiological change. You know, one of the core cool things with people with Parkinson's is they can't produce enough dopamine. And yet somehow now they're producing enough dopamine so there's a physiological shift going on mm-hmm. uh, you know at a metabolic level that, that's just fascinating because it's showing that there is a way of switching out on a system which appears to have been broken or disrupted mm-hmm. and the other thing i read in in the paper was that uh, so you, you you worked out that people had i think 25 50 75 or 100 chance of getting the pill uh, and you told them this you said each time it was completely placebo but you said your chances that you, the pill is active there one in four of these pills are active we'll mix them up we'll give you one of them uh, and the best response was to 75 percent is that right mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. If, if they thought they had a hundred percent response it what a hundred percent chance of getting the real drug it wasn't as powerful as if they'd get the 75 percent chance
1: mm-hmm and our interpretation of that is based on other data in the reward literature. We all know dopamine is released in rewarding situations everywhere from drugs of abuse to using your cell phone. So this is this kind of dopamine squirt that our brains produce to keep us engaged, keep us interested, keep us looking after this reward and going back and going back and going back. And so this is a very... Uh, it's, be, it's actually used... For, for learning in the brain. That's how the brain learns to make associations with things. Um, and so we our, our, our take on that result, and we kind of expected it, although we thought it might be highest at 50%, although it wasn't. But there's something about having a bit of uncertainty that the outcome is not totally known that is actually a very potent stimulus for the brain, where it's kind of predictable, but you're just not sure. Um, that's when human a human brain is kind of most engaged I think
0: yeah I've, I've read that stuff because my research uh, my PhD was in addictions so looked uh, a lot about the, the other end of the dopamine system the reward system and I think you see it don't you in TV shows that uh, when they pause you know before the next episode there's a kind of oh, what's going to happen next a twist yeah, hanger. Hanger. and then when you go <laughs> to the next it is it kind of it might be but if you're certain it's going to happen then you probably wouldn't watch it you want to kind of go is it going to happen and sometimes it does and sometimes there's a twist and and so we know i mean i always think that people in hollywood whoever makes tv shows they understand human psychology more more than most people because that's how they sell their sell their stuff of course, the same with yeah. social media people. They they know how to get us sucked into that, I mean, squirt, as you call it. Yeah, really interesting mm-hmm. stuff. Um, so what did you make of it when you, when you first saw people having a physiological response, really observable using the, the technology you had, to something that was completely non, there was no physiological input, there was no uh, pharmaceutical, it was just internally generated. What did you make of that?
1: I mean it was a uh, anecdotally, and I didn't put this in the paper, but you know, I observed people with moderate to severe Parkinson's disease who need medication in order to move, who were able to essentially, when they thought they were on medication, able to get off of, you know, lying in a pet scanner for an hour and a half, no problems, get their shoes on, walk down the hall, walk up a flight of stairs, and then into the conference room where we then told them in fact the the true purpose of the study. Um, and so I, I very, I've very often in my clinical practice seen this where patients are, are doing much better. Uh, it, it was as a researcher and as a young researcher, I was quite astounded by this. Um, I wasn't, I can't say that I was surprised because we know the placebo effect is real. We know that these, these, um, mechanisms exist in the brain, but it was quite something, um, to watch, to watch these patients when they thought they were on medication. And to then tell them there's a lot of anxiety around, well, actually, we did. (laughs) But (laughs) which gets into a whole other kind of ethical discussion. Um, But people, vast majority of them laughed. They couldn't, they were, oh, my God, I couldn't believe it. And nobody was angry at all. Um, People (laughs) people were surprised themselves at what their bodies could do.
0: Did you find that once people learned that it was a placebo, that the effects were quicker or did it not seem to make any difference? Did you look at that?
1: yeah pretty soon after it was it was time for them to receive their their first dose of the day because they had not received medication for the whole night before and so mm-hmm. forth but yeah there there was a bit of a disintegration i certainly didn't measure it uh, I, I can't give you data to back that up but yeah
0: yeah there's some interesting um other people i've been interviewing who'd been doing open label placebo studies where they say hey it's it's a placebo but here's the evidence and they were talking a lot about how important the framing was before about what that means you know so the patients know participants know that that means there is some effect even though it's not real really interesting stuff and it kind of brings us on to something i'm very interested in which is the importance of language in healthcare how what we say as clinicians uh, or as patients what we say to ourselves the effect that that can have on on these kind of systems without having any you know unintentionally triggering nocebo effects sometimes or not utilizing placebo effects and the ethics of all that what's the right thing to say and what's your take on it now you've done both research the research end and the clinical end do you have a take on that
1: well i think you know i always i i say to people i (laughs) imagine doing a you know a phd in placebo effect where you learn the power of what these things can do and how they can affect the human brain and health and symptoms and then going into medical school and <laughs> doing medical training with that that perspective so I, I i've always felt that my view of medicine is very different from that of most of my colleagues um, and i think sometimes to my detriment but often i think patients quite quite like my my approach with them but it's because i I have a um I have a very strong belief based on my my own research and others research in the field that the art side of medicine, the doctor patient relationship, that interaction substantially contributes to, to to patients outcomes and it's all about communication. And that is as important as, as any medication that I could ever prescribe. And so I think there is a tendency in our healthcare system now, um, there's many excellent physicians and osteopaths and allied health members working with patients, uh, but I, I will say the pendulum right now in medicine is very much based on empiric testing, testable results, lab results and medications, and that is seen as treatment. and um, you give a a patient comes into your office, they have a problem, you ask them a bunch of questions, you prescribe a medication, they come back and they're better. And the assumption is that it is this medication I have given that has made the patient better. When in fact, actually, it's much, much, much more complex than that. There's a huge environmental and relationship um, th- therapy that is that is happening, that is discounted, and, and not, I don't think, recognized. Um, Partially because it's empirically very difficult to study this. Uh, these, these studies are almost impossible to do and to standardize and are in our current way of approaching randomized controlled trials and so forth. But my, my view is that this is actually, is the healing comes a lot more from that than it does from the medication itself. And we need to understand what those factors are. What is it about that interaction that is itself producing healing, creating, you know, therapeutic and, and use that more in how we actually practice medicine because I think that then trickles down into the models of how we design healthcare delivery which is my area of of research now Um, I'm sure that answers your
0: question yeah no it does it's something that I'm particularly focused and fascinated on I've seen people whose futures have been significantly affected by their casual statement from a you know either a doctor or a clinician who said something and it kind of it didn't even mean it you know so I remember somebody once having a, a young boy who was about 19 and he was told he had osteophytes in his neck uh, which are the little you know bits of bone that happen through wear and tear and they were described as spikes going out through his neck and as a result he kind of came in in absolute you know functional spasm not wanting to move in case he severed anything with the tiniest movements uh, and the other thing that I find really interesting, which I, I found a real trouble when I was doing my research, was trying to get some... Uh, so if you do research, for those who don't know, you have to use validated forms. So that's forms that are, uh, or scales that have been used many times and proven to be a useful way of collecting information. And most of the, the forms, the validated scales that you use, massively focused on negatives and symptoms so the pain ones are particularly awful fatigue ones are pretty dreadful uh, in that the the hit rate of the words uh, which would be and there's some interesting research on how words trigger different neurological kind of activation but particularly in in pain if you say the word pain you will trigger parts of the brain that tend to process pain much more than if you say the word avocado or banana. Unsurprisingly, so if you have someone with neurology that is, you know, already well wired into into pain neurology, and you say the word pain 27 times, then you are going to be triggering all sorts of s- systems you don't want to. And what's interesting is you could avoid using those words. You know, you could say how comfortable are you? You know. But because of the way that it's done, you have to use particular words, and that then becomes. I mean, we. I don't know if it's the same for you when you were training, but when I was training clinically, we had to ask all sorts of questions about symptoms, you know. And some of them were useful, and some of them weren't. You just had to ask them anyway. And this kind of not thinking about or not considering that the words we say might have a bit much bigger impact, uh, not just our relationship, which I think is really important but even the words we say within that relationship that can have such an important factor in, in shifting neurology. So how uh, do you train people now? Are you at a point where you have people under your wing that you're guiding in, the, in a new direction?
1: Yeah, I do. I have residents and medical students and they, and they
0: come through and,
1: and it's always, it's, it's amazing to, I love teaching and I love having them in the clinic because you kind of realize how, how far now I've, how much I've learned. Uh, since that time as well. Um, I I try to take a position of, I, I mean, there are a lot of benefits to having done research before starting my clinical practice, and that is that as a researcher, you're not burdened with this uh, responsibility for the patient's welfare. And so you can actually interact with the patient and their family and have a normal conversation um, without having to figure out what is the diagnosis, what is the steps in treatment, what am I going to do next? Uh, and there's actually in the training phases of doctors, there's a lot of anxiety that people feel that because they want to have the right answer all the time. And I try to get my trainees to, to get step back and just, just talk with the patient as a, as a person. Stop being a doctor for, you know, five minutes and just listen to the patient. Mm. Um, yeah. In our program in Toronto here, the clinic that we're, we're building is an integrated clinic with neurology and psychiatry and physiotherapy, all seeing the patient together. And we're studying that model. And so this is... You know, integration—not at a systems level, but at a at a person level—because no disease, especially neurology, especially neurological chronic disease, is happening in a vacuum. There is a brain that is there that is full of experience, a lifetime of, you know, uh, potentially trauma, difficult things, uh, especially interactions with the healthcare system, and that then changes. That it's not happening on a blank canvas. This intersects with illness and the person's perception of illness in their body and of their disease. And so it's really important to have multiple perspectives looking at the problem, not just that of the neurologist, but also the psychiatrist, also the physiotherapist about how they move in their body. And, and I think when you have that type of approach, you not only um, see the person differently, but you define the problems differently and you find solutions to those problems that are also different as well. Um, and so it's it's actually kind of a step beyond just simply multidisciplinary, which is what everyone is trying to, which is arguably m- much better care than having a single doctor organizing everything. Um, but yeah, so I think that that is a model that we are using, that is a model that we are training our trainees to kind of appreciate this, I guess, a, a holistic approach, um, if you want to call it that. <laughs> I
0: think I think it's a good yeah, I think a systematic or systems-based approach is is got to be the way forward. I remember when I was training. And we did anatomy and the anatomy books were broken into regional anatomy. So you do the forearm, which is from the hand to the elbow. Then you do the upper arm. Then you do the next bit. And, Mm -hmm. you know, forgetting everything is completely connected. You know, the neurology goes through it. The blood goes through it. Uh, But it was really taught in that way and often not very sequentially. So you do the hand and then you do the knee, you know, (laughs) just trying to fit all this together. And it was only when we we did dissection, it was like, oh, this this is all ah, it's all connected, this thing, yeah. Which is central, interestingly, to a lot of non-Western approaches. So although osteopathy is, yes. is Western, it, yes. it had a much bigger view of of the body and a quite holistic view. But certainly, if you go eastwards, you tend to find a different uh, idea of the interconnectedness. Do you do you feel that that uh, Western medicine head in in a different direction, and why was that? Um, why you know why why do we go that way rather than keeping a sense of togetherness?
1: Uh, this is uh, that's that's a question I I just don't know the answer to. I mean I I am reading this book right now by Anne Harrington, which has really changed how I how I look at medicine. But even just our 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 concept of Eastern medicine and Western medicine is kind of to some extent a, a fabricated uh, construct. Um, and so, I I actually don't know. I think um, I think there's a tendency to attribute you know this more holistic approach to care and you know this lack of emphasis on you know MRIs and and fancy testing and so forth that seems to go with with Eastern medicine. But I'm not sure if that's actually true. <laughs> you know, I at the end of, at the end of the day, the therapeutic relationship really comes down to trust between the therapist and and, and the patient, which I think you can have in both. Um, but I am very interested to learn more about the other types of appealing models uh, that are there and why they work.
0: Well, I, th- I think the other thing that's interesting is say the Western Eastern conversation is, and I talked about this on another interview, is we're not so much talking about Western, we're talking about a, a modern Western version because of course there were lots of you know people doing interesting <laughs> folk medicine all over the place in Western. Mm-hmm. And if you look in America and Canada, you know, the indigenous, you know, native healing medicines uh, are all over there, uh, you know, st- and still exist. Um in fact Dan I don't know if you know Dan Merman, who was uh he wrote this really interesting book um about uh placebos. Um he originally was a an, an anthropologist particularly interested in the herbs of the American Indians. I think I don't know if that's how he got into it, but that was his that's his <laughs> background. Uh, yeah. So, so one of the questions I asked was why, why did we move away from those more often slightly more holistic perspectives, where they took into account seasons and you know what was growing and the spirits and all that kind of stuff? That that all got knocked apart, knocked knocked away, even though we still had a massively religious, you know, Western civilization based on some kind of central, probably Christian God at that point. Um, so yeah, interesting. Probably huge, two huge questions for today, but interesting questions. So, what's the book you're reading? That'll be uh, something for people to point to. What's it called? This book?
1: Oh, like short, I'll gra- yeah, I'll yeah, grab <laughs> I can show it. I'll grab it. I haven't. she's written a few. She's. Uh, I read her, a lot of hers. It's called *The Cure Within: History <laughs> of Mind-Body Medicine*.
0: Oh wow! And her name is. What's her name? Can you lift it up? Anne slightly? Harrington. Anne Harrington. Yes. Excellent. I'll we'll check that out. Do you have much experience of people um, saying, oh, there's nothing to this mind-body connection? Does that cross your path much? Or do people go, oh, that's really interesting. People know what you do all the time. Is do Because it's a funny old world, isn't it, to be in the world of the mind-body connection or the brain-mind-body connection. It's not something that most people are researching into or working with. Uh, so do you, do you bump into people who go, you crazy... Crazy lady from Canada. What do they say?
1: Crazy <laughs> <laughs> Canadians are everywhere. everywhere. <laughs> I, I don't. I have to say, I don't encounter much resistance in terms of of mind body. I think, I think that there still is a cultural desire among among human beings to want to believe that positive thinking uh, can influence disease states. That you know there is still a lot of remnants from 50s and 60s and these models are really coming out in the U.S. and this whole idea about you know, adopting positive thinking, you can do anything that you want to, you can, if you think strong enough, your, your tumors will melt away and these types of, there's enough kind of these anecdotal stories that I think it, that even in itself, that, that connection is something that has been around for hundreds of years. I think that's part of the fabric of how we see our bodies uh, in society. What I encounter a lot more, and in fact on a daily basis in my practice, is this idea of very strong stigma against the role of anything determined or in the domain of psychiatry or the mind to be then responsible for physical symptoms. This whole concept of being all in my head uh, is something that patients self-stigmatize hugely in our medical system still does this as well, where if it's something that's in the mind, it can't be real, and and this is actually a huge barrier to understanding a lot of a lot of illness that happens today. There's autoimmune disease, neuroinflammatory dis- disorders. These are all stress-induced disorders. There's a whole group of medicine of conditions that get worse with stress. There are conditions that you know functional disorders that I see that are so common that are attributed to a mind problem, but actually. Often we don't find any kind of psychiatric symptoms at all, and so we're not doing a good job of. Um, I think this is this harkens back to historically what happened when psychiatry kind of broke off in like the late 1800s, and began to um, assimilate people into asylums and kind of divorce itself from relevant medicine, and I think now we we need to really bring psychiatry back into. Medicine and playing a meaningful role in how we actually frame illness frame the body understand these processes as an example so Anxiety for example, right 40% of the population has anxiety Anxiety still is kind of deterred. It's in the domain of psychiatrists, right? This is seen as worry rumination poor sleep. It's psychiatry kind of put their flagpole into anxiety and yet there is a massive physiologic list of symptoms that occur in anxiety Tension in the muscles, sweating in the palms, brisk reflexes, uh, vigilance, uh, heart rate increases. Your bre- these are this is it's a very um, somatic or physiologic experience that can produce very that makes symptoms. And yet, this is not in the domain of psychiatrists, and nor is it in the domain of neurologists or internal medicine doctors. It is where does it go? So and, and it's misdiagnosed. People don't get an accurate diagnosis. They undergo tests. They see multiple doctors for this. And there's actually an answer that's very examinable, has real physiologic findings you can find on an exam um, with a real history. And, and you can diagnose this and you can treat this. So, 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 what happens to that?
0: <laughs> so. I think it's partly the problem this this mind body disconnect, isn't it? Where we're trying to say, well, is it there or is it here? And as you say, as soon as you get into anxiety, you trigger sympathetic nervous system response through the you know the HPA, and boff, you've got okay. physical symptoms, which then will feed back up into the neurology. So, where is the problem? Mm. Uh, and and mm-hmm. trying to see it through the myopic lens of its the mind or it's the body. I think that's where we get into huge amounts of problems because as I'm sure you remember Cox postulates, you know, that, that you can create a disease by identifying a very specific organism, culturing that organism and feeding it back to a human and getting the disease. That's the model that we yeah. kind of bought into massively and it doesn't work on, in so many places. It's okay for a number of kind of infectious diseases, but it's, it's not a very smart model for the complexity Of us being more than just a test tube which is part of the problem isn't it we see us as just a test tube uh we would treat us as just just a test tube but we're we're a computer we're a a beating heart we're an emotional mess we're all sorts of things so we have to develop a different way of being around it so for you what is where do you see the future of medicine going what is your hope for uh, A the future of medicine and B the research that you're doing. What do you hope that will open up?
1: Yeah, I think I think we have to design better healthcare models that reflect what actually happens in the biology of, of chronic illness and chronic disease. Because you know now this is the biggest cost to any healthcare system is is the management of chronic illness. No longer are we you know the population is based is pretty well in developed countries at at this point. I recognise it in this is not the case around the world um and the way that this i think we have to redefine how we view chronic disease and chronic illness um this has to be a patient-centered approach the there needs to be at some level a redefinition of how we actually look at disease look at illness and look at treatment this involves also a huge amount of education um and self-management and activating people uh this involves patients and physicians speaking the same language uh, it involves a, a reprioritization and definition of problems not only from the doctor's perspective, but from a, a, I guess a, a marriage of both the patient and the physician and the social worker at present and the physiotherapist or whoever. So I would, I, I would, I would think that that needs to be. Um, considered. I also think in terms of neurology, I mean, in my own field and my own excellent colleagues, you know, we're, we're trained to find the lesion that equals disease. And in fact, if we're finding that the second most common reason to see a neurologist is is functional disorders, which have no lesion, we have to expand our, our concept of, of what is, what is a, what is symptoms? What, what is illness? And so, so I, I think that's what I would like. I would like kind of a reframing of this. Um, And then how the system is then redesigned to reflect this.
0: I think the idea of activation of patients, which is a a very common thing at the moment within the discourse around health, is essential. And there's an, an interesting question, which is so activation means patients becoming involved, more and more influential in doing stuff to improve their health, whether it's exercising more, changing their diet, maybe meditating, thinking differently. And that really tricky uh, balance between saying, look, you can make a difference and people thinking, are you saying, telling me it's my fault, you know, really managing that that very important conversation that they hear. No, it's not your fault, but there are things you can do about it, which again is about coming back to communication, because that's quite a nuanced conversation, isn't it, to have with somebody, uh, which probably has isn't part of most people's medical training because that's there's other stuff to learn and i certainly found when i was training that communication wasn't there wasn't enough time spent on it and yet it's what you do with every single patient whatever illness they have you're going to be communicating and and skillfully communicating is something i had to do extra courses for years to to work Mm. out what makes a difference and what doesn't make a difference do you think that's changing in medicine? And not just in medicine, but in healthcare generally, but in your experience in medicine, is it communication being better focused on?
1: I I don't know. I, I still think the emphasis very much, I I think that is what the medical educators would would like to be doing. And I, I think it's been recognized as a very important area of growth for medical schools and medical training in general. There's so much to learn becoming a doctor. Um, you learning an entirely new language or learning an entirely how the entire human body works and all the disease states. So I think I think it might come down to also selection, candidate selection. Uh, I don't think that these are non trainable qualities, but I think they can be very difficult to train. Um, and a lot of thought has to be put into these kind of curricula. I think again, you know, part of this can lie in integration. You know, when I have a uh, when I'm w- working with a psychiatrist, learning how she communicates with patients, I learn a huge amount. Even at the stage of my career as a fully, fully functioning staff neurologist, um, so I think you know there is room for creative ways of exposing trainees to better styles of communication through training that don't necessarily involve a didactic teaching of a lecture of this how I communicate to a patient, for example. And I think many of the of the innovative medical schools are are definitely going this way. Um, there's a shift to competency-based evaluation now where it's not just a checklist of learning skills, but it's actually, you know, showing mastery over specific types of interactions, uh, which I think is, is helping. So how people are being evaluated uh, is, is changing as well. But I think that I think the tide is slow to, to shift because it is still is embedded in working within a healthcare system that is structured in the way that it is. And until the remuneration changes, um, this is these are very hard, hard things to do. You know, as a neurologist, I can't bill for therapy, for example, and on a very practical basis, neurology is not really seen as a therapeutic specialty. And yet, I want to give therapy to my patients. Um, I, they they trust me. We have a good relationship. I have the skills to actually deliver therapy. And so, in a way that a psychiatrist is can bill for therapy, where they so so it's these like kind of little into you know, the listeners. It's not all about the billing, obviously, but it's it's a practical. These are some of the barriers uh, that we have about changing these things.
0: I've I found over the last few years, I've been invited more and more to talk to medical schools and GPs trainings on nuance within language, within consults. So there's definitely a shift, but I think it is partly. There's an old school of the way it was done. and There's the new pressure of, oh, my God, we're getting a more and more chronic uh, functional illness, that doesn't respond to, as you say, it's not, you know, people dying of diphtheria anymore, you know. It's, it's, it's more nuanced than that. And also we're getting an older population, which means we're going to have all sorts of other stuff coming on. So, yeah, really fascinating stuff. So to kind of close, a couple of things. First of all, what for you, out of all the research you've done and your work in neurology and clinical neurology, what would be your top tip? What would be something you, you really learned you'd like everyone to know about that would be really useful?
1: I think I would say a little bit what I said earlier about recognizing that you're, there's a lot that you don't, well I guess, so <laughs> this is to other physicians, but I guess any healthcare practitioner maybe, which may or may not, maybe the if the listeners are patients they can also advocate for this, but this idea that I I did not know how little I actually knew about my patients until I sat in the room with that person, with the psychiatrist next to me for six hours, like separate, you know, one hour per time, but six different times. There is a life story to to every single person who comes to see a doctor. And they may not choose to tell you some of these things. And these are things that can be either difficult to talk about, or the patient may not feel safe, or they may not feel is relevant for, you know, the reason that they're seeing the doctor. But what we are suggesting to people does not occur in a in in a vacuum. There is a life story that is there that is highly relevant to how that person will respond to treatment, any therapy that you propose, how they communicate with you, and I think getting to know more before feeling like you have to actually do something and by doing something it doesn't have to just be a medication you don't have to provide a treatment on the first on the first go you can take time to get to know people a bit better and I think it's a more rewarding way to to practice medicine actually um, and I think it also changes the course of how that therapeutic relationship might work and it might change the options that become available for treatment that you might see so it's a bit about expanding your horizons, being a bit more comfortable to, you know, not irresponsibly work outside of your scope of practice, but to maybe ask more questions um, on a human level, not on a physician level.
0: Uh, great. And if if you're in the other chair and you're the patient or the somebody dealing with health issues, uh, or maybe not dealing with health issues, but wanting to improve your health, uh through anything that you've learned that you could teach them what would be an exercise or a tip you would give to either a patient who's dealing with issues or somebody who goes is there anything I had to learn for myself to improve my health from the stuff that you know what would you say
1: I think I would start, you know, by defining what are the most important things in your life? What are the, you know, top three aspirations all the time? What are the, you know, I get them to list all the symptoms in their body and then I say, okay, tell me what the most, what the three biggest things are. What are the three most important things to you for your quality of life? What is holding you back from being the full actualized person that you want to be at work, at home, with your family, with your relationships? And I get them to tell me what those three things are. And that's when you all of a sudden know, okay, now you have a plan and the beginnings of a goal. And it's important to vocalize those to your, to your healthcare professionals. They need to know what those things are. But part of the exercise is in you actually knowing what they are first. Mm. Um, and then I would also suggest body tension relaxation techniques to every- <laughs> to everyone. So. You know, breathing exercises, progressive muscle relaxation, you know, these are things that do promote this recognition of how your own body and your mind, which I think are the same thing, but showing how they work together, right? When you breathe, you're going from a sympathetic to a parasympathetic state. This is changing your body physiology. These are things that are useful when you're on the subway, when you're going to your busy meeting, when you're putting the kids after, you know, they've gone to bed, These are things that remind us that we are our bodies are kind of one in the same with our mind it's a great way to to get at that that mechanism
0: so to spend some time learning how to run this amazing machine system that we have how to put it in neutral how to calm it down is a top top tip I would agree with that one of my top tips for people and mentioned earlier about how prevalent anxiety is is to slow down the speed of your external voice but also your internal voice which will follow if you start to speak as I am doing now slower and what's interesting is that through mirror neurons that we have when somebody speaks fast we will start to think fast will be activated Mm -hmm. and when somebody just starts to slow down we too start Mm -hmm. to slow down and probably the most powerful voice that affects us is the one we have in our own head and we all have voices in our head it's not a sign of madness the question is what are they saying but also how fast or slow or happy or sadly are they saying it? i
1: was going to say there's one quote that i love which is my first thought isn't often my best <laughs> <laughs> so you it in cognitive behavioral therapy, but the like, not going to be always your best.
0: <laughs> I think also the other thing you said about, you know, you asked them about the three, you know, what's kind of getting in your way. What's interesting about that question is it's a very big, but very important question. And it and takes it out from just a, what are your symptoms? What's going on to a, tell me about things that are significant. And as you, shift into that you shift from a, a very kind of behavioral level to much more of an identity or an a mission level and that will engage very different urology very different ways of thinking about what's important so yeah. very interesting question and i think this is one of the problems that we've got into with clinical work is that we we dive into the minutiae what's the you know this tiny fragment of your life rather than you as this extraordinary person with all these possibilities because we know from the research that you talked about you've done and other people have done how much this affects our actual on a molecular level what happens that think different hormones are produced, different neurons are switched on with very different state activations, different memories, different thoughts Really, really interesting to talk to you. Thank you so much for spending some time with us, uh, and uh, out of your, what I'm sure, is a very, very busy practice. Um, anything you'd like to add as a final, something to say, or where to find you, or what you're up to?
1: Yeah, I, I'm in Toronto. I work at Toronto Western Hospital here. I am. Um, my social media presence is not. It's growing. The, it's being built <laughs> we're in the very nascent stages of our program but yeah you can look me up i'm happy to answer questions so anytime. when we
0: look you up what do we look for you're at something or on twitter what's your I think,
1: yeah name? you can just yeah dr sarah lidstone is uh actually on i well I'm, on twitter i'm just sarah lidstone but my <laughs> you can always send me an email uh which you have i'm not sure if it's okay to send me an email but it's sarah sarah.lidstone at ca.
0: brilliant thank you so much sarah great to speak to you thanks bill The Mind-Body Connection Podcast. The body. the mind I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do subscribe to us on iTunes. Like it, review it, and share it. The more people know about this, the better. And don't forget to join our podcast mailing list by going to philparker.org forward slash yes and you'll get extra stuff, bonus material, and program notes. See you there.